0: Welcome to PwC's accounting podcast series. I am Heather Horn. Today's episode is a first for us. It's part two of a discussion on equity method accounting that we started on Tuesday. However, similar to many serial TV shows, don't worry if you missed Tuesday's episode. You can jump right in with today's and then perhaps you'll be inspired to go back and listen to the introduction. For this discussion, I'm joined by PwC partner Matt Sabatini. We recorded this conversation before we all started working from home, so you may notice our improved sound quality. And perhaps anticipating our new focus on positivity, I actually asked Matt a question at the end about what he likes most about working at National. It's pre-COVID-19, but I think still very valid. So with that, let's get started. So Matt, thanks for joining me in the studio today. So then why don't we move on to some common misconceptions about the equity method? And I have a couple to ask you about, and then I'm sure you have a few to add. So why don't we start with basis differences? And I think this is something that trips so many people up. There's a lot of confusion about them and how to deal with them. So What can you tell us?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and frankly, if you had stopped listening to this podcast five minutes in, I probably would have misled you because what I said was the basic model for applying the equity method is picking up your proportionate share of the earnings. So if I own twenty five percent, I could take twenty five percent of the earnings or losses, or losses and, and, and OCI. OCI, right? Yes. Um, what's <laughs> the way I might have misled you, right? If you'd stop listening, is you don't stop there, right? Because what happens when you buy into an equity method investment, um, you're, you're recording it at your cost to acquire the investment in most cases, right? we can talk about a couple of exceptions. So what you've paid to acquire the equity method investment is what goes on your books when you're debiting equity method investment on your balance sheet. Okay. The underlying investee didn't have a remeasurement event for its balance sheet. So it's just marching along doing its accounting based on its historical mm. numbers, right? So I might have paid $100 for my 25% investment. That doesn't mean that the investee changed their financial reporting at all. In fact, they can't. Right. So I have a basis of a hundred. The investee has a basis, whatever its historical basis was. Sometimes it's well below that if it's been around for a while. Um, and I have to account for that difference. Right. So what I paid that hundred for is, can be, Divided up into the underlying assets of the investee. In fact, you have to do that, right? So you have to specifically identify what you paid for. Um, and so, if you know fixed assets, for example, at the investee was recorded at a low value, and part of my hundred dollar payment was a reflection of the fact that it increased in value, or that its fair value is higher than its reported book value. That's my basis difference that I attribute to property, plant, equipment. Right. Same goes for intangibles. And those intangibles might not even be on the books right. of the investee. They might be unrecognized intangibles. So I would think about that. So it's it's almost like you're doing a purchase like, price Yeah, allocation, purchase allocation. Yeah. As if you had done a business combination and you're keeping track of that in your memo accounts up above.
0: So then can you have goodwill?
1: Yeah. Oftentimes you will, right? So you're going to take that hundred dollars that you paid and you're going to try to identify all the basis differences, but any excess Purchase price over identified assets, intangible, intangible, is going to go to your equity method kind of goodwill account, which, again, is just in that one line of equity method investment. You're not going to report it separately on your balance sheet. Right. But you are going to track it. Yeah, you need that... some
0: good books and records to A- support
1: it. Absolutely. And and that's not going to be amortized, right? The, the other basis difference is about intangibles and around property, plant, and equipment. You're going to amortize that. So when you're picking up your proportionate share of the income or losses, you're going to add or subtract to that based on depreciation or amortization.
0: Okay. And so then that would be following the depreciation live that the, the equity method investee is using, or how do you determine what lives you should be amortizing over?
1: Similar to a business combination where you're applying purchase accounting, you're going to come up with a useful life mm. for the asset yourself. Okay. Uh, it may be consistent with what the investee is doing, um, but a- again, the investee might not even have the intangible on its books. Right. So it's a situation where you're, you're going to have to do some diligence and understand um, what that life is that you're going to amortize it over.
0: So, getting into the equity method is not an escape from applying the purchase allocation method, I guess, of accounting at, on day one.
1: It's not, and it's um, it's something I think that catches a lot of investors by surprise because you know a lot of times it's going to involve the um, uh, expertise of a valuation professional. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes you have that ability in house, sometimes you don't. Um, depends maybe again about how material the investment is, whether or not you're going to take that on yourself or you're going to hire somebody to help you do it. Um, but it's certainly it's certainly something to think about when you're getting into these because it creates complexity, creates resources, resource needs, I should say, right? Right, Uh, And and can cause delays in terms of getting your initial accounting all set up and ready to go.
0: Okay. So then Matt, what about other types of differences? Like what other differences do you see besides these basis differences?
1: Good question. I I think you need to look at the investee and, and kind of the basis at which they're reporting before you just kind of take, again, your proportionate share of the earnings or losses. So, for example, the investee might be an IFRS reporter, um, and you're a an U.S. GAAP uh, reporter. Yes,
0: so you have to convert. <laughs> <laughs> so, you have
1: to convert. Absolutely, you can't take you know 25% of the IFRS reported net income right. or changes in OCI. You got to figure out what that's going to be under U.S. GAAP and then take 25% of that Plus, again, the amortization of your basis differences. That's a difference that not a lot of people, I think, focus on. Um, One thing that's a fairly new phenomenon is the um, private company council alternatives. So you might see a situation where your investee is amortizing goodwill. If you're a public company investor into an investee that's amortizing goodwill, you have to reverse that. So regardless of what private company uh, council alternative they've undertaken or adopted mm-hmm. at the investee level, you have to reverse the effects of that when you're doing your equity method pickup.
0: But then do you have to convert all their accounting policies to public company accounting policies?
1: Not necessarily, right? So it, it doesn't requ- the equity method doesn't require um, 100% matching of accounting policies. So you can have an investee on LIFO. If you're on FIFO, that's OK. But for a private company where it's actually prohibited for a public company to adopt that, that's something that you should keep an eye on. Okay. Right. The other thing I'd say is, and and this goes to your question, right? If there's industry specific accounting Mm -hmm. that the equity method investee is using, you're actually required as the investor to maintain that industry specific accounting. So we mentioned earlier investment companies. Um, if you're a corporation that has an investment in an investment company and they're recording their investments at fair value, you would retain that. In your act.
0: And you would carry that up into your share. Okay. You got it. Okay, that's helpful. And then maybe move on to another topic where, that I know can trip people up and that could be important, again, with sort of the economic volatility we're having right now. When do you stop picking up losses from an equity method, investee? Now, I've noticed you always refer to gains, so I do. you have a very positive <laughs> frame of mind, but there are obviously cases where you're dealing with losses. So how do you deal with that?
1: My experience is that our clients only invest in companies that there you go. generate <laughs> income. Um, no, in all seriousness, so... Equity method losses are certainly the other the other um, side of that coin, right? And the general concept around equity method losses, and I'm stressing general concept because we're going to go into exceptions, are you stop recognizing equity method losses when the basis of your equity method investment is reduced to zero. Okay, So that's a general concept is that you don't take your equity method negative, which is different than non-controlling interest. Mm-hmm. Everybody thinks non-controlling interest is the opposite of equity method. So everything you do equity method, you also do NCI. You can take NCI negative. Not equity method accountants right? Okay. So, but we we do have situations where there's an exception. The first major exception to that is when you hold other interests in the investee entity. So you might have a common stock or in substance common stock investment, but you've also loaned money to the uh, investee. You maybe own a preferred stock in the investee. In those situations, you would then kind of pick up a proportion of the losses from the investee based on what ownership level you have in those other instruments. Okay, you might have to explain that a little more. No problem, right? so let's let's use a simple example where I own common stock and I've taken my proportion of the equity method investment losses to zero. To zero, but I also own uh, preferred stock, right? So if my preferred stock is on my books at a positive number, usually it is. let's say it's at a hundred. After I exhaust my equity method investment, which I had on the books, Previously to zero, I'm going to start taking losses against that preferred stock method. There's a couple of methods to do it, and they're both somewhat complicated. Um, one method might be just to look at the actual capital structure of the investee, think about who owns all that preferred stock, which is now starting to absorb some losses, yeah. and based on your ownership percentage of that total preferred stock um, tranche, start taking losses in that in that manner. The other way is a more complicated method, and it's it's based on kind of Hypothetical, hypothetically li- liquidating the investee's assets at their book value and then seeing your claim on those assets.
0: Yes. I'm going to get you back for another episode to talk about HLBBs. So. so then, Matt, you gave some examples of uh, types of instruments that you could have with the entity and when you would, that you would continue to recognize losses. But are there any other cases that you would...
1: Yes, there are. So, uh, one situation where you might continue to recognize equity method losses would be would be when you have a commitment to fund um the investee on a go forward basis, right? So that commitment could either be explicit through maybe a shareholder agreement where you and the other shareholders have agreed to fund uh losses over time, oh, or it could be implicit um where you've have a stated intention um to fund those equity method losses or that investee. Uh, Another example of implicit obligations might be technological um, dependency on the investee, right? So that that investee is developing or has developed technology or IP that is um, instrumental to your continued operations. Mm -hmm. In that situation, one might think that you're going to continue to fund even though you've brought your basis down to zero. One other situation would be if the return to profitable operations is imminent. um, That would be a situation in which you can continue to recognize losses. Take your equity method negative with the anticipation that it would unwind in a relatively short order because um, you'll start picking up gains.
0: Okay, so then before we move to our last topic, maybe wrap up our misconceptions, anything on the impairment method that you want to talk about?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So equity method investments, they're subject to an impairment model that's um, referred to as the other than temporary impairment model, right? So if you have a decline in value of your investment that's other than temporary, you're going to write down your equity method investment to to its fair value at that point. Obviously, it's going to be very subjective when that decline is other than temporary. The, the steeper the decline in value and the longer that you anticipate uh, recovery to take, obviously, the more evidence you have that it's that it is isn't other than temporary decline, you should be taking an impairment charge. One thing to think about is if the investee takes impairment charges on their um, assets, you're going to be picking up your proportionate share of those impairment charges through your equity method pickup. And yes, you have to do that, but you also have to think about how that impacts your basis differences. So the investee might be impairing an intangible asset that you have on your books for a different value than they have. So you might take an impairment charge and then think about the impact on on your basis difference going forward.
0: And then I guess the other point you're making is that even if they're making impairment charges, you still have to do this other than temporary impairment assessment to see if you should take a
1: broader impairment charge as Absolutely. Well. Absolutely. And you're actually prohibited from looking into your equity method investment and testing your equity method goodwill separate from your overall um, equity method investment. You're looking on an overall basis and you're picking up a proportion of what they're taking on their, on their impairments.
0: Okay. That's helpful and definitely something people should stay focused on. So, very good. Um, Okay. Then why don't we move to our last topic? Just a few quick reminders on reporting. And I know one question that always comes up is what happens if you can't get your financial information timely?
1: Yeah. Good question. So, a a lot of companies um, actually avail themselves of the opportunity to use a lag in picking up um, their equity method impacts in their financial statements. So, Generally speaking, it's 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 no more than three months, right? We use that as by analogy to the guidance in the consolidation world when there's no real guidance in the equity method world about how far you can go. Right. Generally, it's no more than okay, three months. and it, and you know that generally is sufficient time for the investee to be able to close its books um, and and report its numbers up to the investors. Usually, there's more than one investor yes. right, for them to be able to do um, not only enough for them to figure out if their equity method pick up, but to also assess, you know, changes in the equity or capital structure of the investee, whether or not the investee had any capital transactions, like selling additional shares or buying shares back and all of the things that could complicate an equity method. Um, the three months, you know, is usually a, uh, it
0: should be enough time.
1: Absolutely. In, in doing your uh, your lag reporting, you should never do it for more than a, t- a 12-month period in terms of your equity method pickup, right? So you should be limiting yourself to, at the most, an annual period in your pickup if you're doing reporting annually. If you're doing reporting quarterly, you're going to do only a three-month period.
0: Okay. And I guess maybe that led me to think of another question that's probably also a topic for our next podcast. But So something happens in the lag period. So you are twelve thirty one year end, and you're picking up their numbers as of September 30th but you know they had a major loss in the fourth quarter how do you, do you have to do anything with that
1: yes so good question okay. and it does come up a lot okay uh, you, you are required to give recognition to any kind of significant or material items that you know occurred during the lag period um, But when I say recognition, I don't necessarily mean recognition through your equity method pickup. There's two ways you can give recognition to that event. One is by picking it up in your equity method investment. The other is through disclosure. The fact that you might be differing for one event from your general lag reporting for your right. equity method creates a lot of complexity. Yes. Um So a lot of people default to the disclosure as a way to handle those. But it's really facts and circumstances driven. Um, And, you know, different events, significance, materiality may weigh into which way you decide to go. Okay, that's
0: helpful. Um, so then, Matt, anything else that we should be thinking about from a reporting perspective?
1: Sure. I mean, as always, there's gap requirements in the codification under a c three twenty three which is the first time I've mentioned, that's what it covers the equity method accounting.
0: Thank you for mentioning that. You're
1: welcome. Um, There's requirements for disclosures. So I would certainly um, read those and make sure you're being compliant with GAAP on the disclosure side. But also, if you're a public company, um, one thing that comes up a lot is the SEC requirements around equity method investments. So rule 309 gives you different requirements for when you might have to supply separate financial statements of an equity method investee or summarize financial information for an investee. And that's either on an annual basis or on a quarterly basis. so I would, you know, advise reporting entities to make sure that they're following those rules and that they're uh, getting smart when they have significant equity method investments to make sure they're being uh, compliant.
0: Okay. Very helpful. Uh, so I think that's all I have for today. Thank you very much for joining me. But before I let you out of the studio, I do have one last question for you. So my question for you today is what your favorite thing about being in the national offices is
1: other than recording these podcasts? Exactly. That, oh, Sorry,
0: you have to put being my something. guest aside. I have to
1: pick something else. Yes. Um, yeah, my favorite thing is, you know, when you're in the national office, at, you really do get to see some of the most interesting, uh, complex, uh, kind of hardest questions, I think, that come, come around in, in the accounting world. So I might be crazy, but I actually like that. Like, I like seeing stuff that you'd say, wow, you don't see that every day. So yeah, I like the challenge. It's it's been It's been great so far.
0: Excellent. Thanks again for joining me today. And with that, I'd like to wish everyone a happy Memorial Day weekend. Hopefully the unofficial start of summer will bring you some sunshine and relaxation. And please join me back here again next week. So that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you have an idea for a future episode, please feel free to email me at heather.horn at pwc.com. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn.